Psalm number 380. We've been asked to mark that. We're certainly delighted to do that. Look forward always to lifting our voice in song at various and sundry times in the services. As mentioned earlier, we're very thankful, certainly, for all the visitors who've come our way. We do hope that both they and the regular membership and all of us have a very blessed occasion to come together, offering our heartfelt praise and adoration to God and doing that in a way that He has asserted in His Word He'll find pleasing. It's still true, isn't it, that God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, borrowing the language of John chapter 4, verse number 24. It is with that said tonight, I might again make mention, of course, that uh, certainly all the ladies, particularly, don't forget about the ladies' Bible class that meets on Wednesday, I'm sorry, Tuesday evening at 6 p.m., and uh, again, you'll find a, a very encouraging study of authority and the circumstances and the matters surrounding it. I know you'll be very edified and blessed if you're able to come and be a part of that Bible study hour. Again, at 6 p.m. Tuesday evening here at the building. I hope that you have your Bible and you'll be turning to Ecclesiastes, the sixth chapter this evening. And we'll devote the next few moments to a reflection on some of the attributes and the features of that glorious chapter in the Word of God. As you and I have studied the book of Ecclesiastes to this point, this slide is my attempt to highlight at least some of the major things that we have encountered. Is life worth living? Now, I'd submit to you that that is a basic question that every civilization and every person in those civilizations has at least had to ponder and we today are no different. In the midst of a land that has so many material blessings, so many opportunities by way of social media for interconnectedness, it never escapes us to still ask this, is life worth living? Is it a proposition that pays more rewards than the required effort that it takes? Solomon wrestled with this problem ages ago. Mankind still often does. Haven't you often on occasion noted the number of suicides, the number of people who choose to take their life and sometimes take a number of other lives along with their own? People have lost their way. They have failed to appreciate the ultimate answer to this question. Is it worth living? If the answer is yes, how is it to be done? This book, of course, among the 65 other ones, gives us these answers. As you'll see on that slide, Solomon mentioned a number of realities of our existence, such as monotony, things that occur day after day, month after month, year after year, and you and I are powerless to change it. Solomon observed this, and no wonder he said, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity under the sun, saith the preacher. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2. I might suggest again we never forget that that phrase, under the sun, identifies that perspective. And before this book's over, our viewpoint will be lifted much more notably from the eternal perspective of the Almighty God of heaven. Along that consideration, Solomon tried a number of things with the hope that they might provide a meaning to life. And I study that in chapter 2. He tried everything from riches and possessions, power and control, wine and other inebriants, if you please. He said none of it works. 
Wouldn't you and I love it if we could impress upon the heart and mind of individuals today the meaning of life won't be found in any of that. Thankfully, the Word of God gives us where the meaning is found. Let's close that slide, though, by noting this. As you and I close the fifth chapter in our study last time, wasn't it true that we highlighted a new perspective, a new viewpoint is about to surface? And that, to some extent, will continue in chapter 6. And it is to that chapter I'll invite your attention. It's a rather brief chapter, so we'll read the entirety of it. But I'm going to divide it into the following considerations. I'll go ahead and turn the slide for you. But I would like to ask you to note this. There are three things in this chapter that the inspired Solomon highlights. Things that are observations that frequently occur, but they always tend to lend our understanding to the fact there has to be a greater and a better than this. Three things that to you and I might well seem unfair. The human family likely would consider it so. doesn't change the fact that it is. What do we make of it? Let's come to verses 1 and 2 and look at the first aspect of the chapter. And then shortly thereafter, we'll read the next three verses as well. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof. But a stranger eateth it. This is vanity, and it is an evil disease." you and I begin to appreciate the first matter I would call to your attention is what I've entitled on this slide, No Power to Enjoy. Solomon makes observation, as you can well see. He had observed and witnessed the fact that there were individuals who had been blessed mightily in that they had acquired many things. You'll notice, he says, having riches and wealth and honor, verse 2. But the fact is... Having all those things, the person wanted for nothing, as far as this world would have anything to say about it. But then you'll notice all was not well. For although he had these things, he did not have the power to eat of it. That's what the text says. Although he had riches and wealth, he didn't have the power to eat of it. I've tried to ask you to develop it this way. If I could put some of that in this language, this is a description of a circumstance in which an individual had been blessed to acquire a number of material things. And maybe as that person acquired these things, the circumstances surrounding it was in no way sinful. It's not like he stole it. And it's not like, for instance, that he went and took it from those less advantaged than he Maybe he worked for it and acquired it by completely lawful means. That doesn't change this fact. But verse 2 says, God giveth him not power to eat thereof. He has acquired all these things, and maybe you and I have often thought about it. You work for 40 years at a job, and you lay by retirement, or maybe you lay by other things with the idea that it will suffice to carry you through those years of retirement. And then you get sick a few months after you retire. Maybe you have a heart attack. Or maybe other family matters arise 
Perhaps it isn't you, but maybe a parent becomes ill and now you have to provide for them and care for them day after day and you no longer have the capability to enjoy perhaps traveling or other things that you would have enjoyed had those other matters not arisen. Notice you don't have the power or luxury to utilize and enjoyment those things you'd put away for so long. That's what Solomon is describing. You'll notice on this slide, the Bible mentions a number of possibilities. Troubles. Borrowing the language of Proverbs 15, verses 16 and 17, there it was noted that it is far better, isn't it, to appreciate a little with the capability to enjoy it than perhaps having a lot without the power to enjoy it. Sometimes troubles, or at least the realities of life, do come our way. We aren't at liberty to utilize what we would have done if those troubles had not arisen. Maybe you've known that in your family. Maybe you've known that in other persons close to you. Sometimes when those things arise, our heart is sufficient in that we devote our attention to assist and to help. And certainly if it's our family, we must do that. May I say, though, there's another possibility. In the language of Luke 12, verse 20, our Lord taught a parable on that occasion. Here was a man, and you and I remember him well. His crops had brought forth a lot abundantly. And his mentality was this, I'll tear down my barns and build some bigger ones, and I'll store those things which I have been able to acquire. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. For thou hast many goods laid up for many years. Sounds like quite a retirement plan, doesn't it? And yet we find those powerful words from the God of heaven who said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. And then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? Now, even though that was a powerful presentation, isn't the message a clear one? You and I need to understand there could be things that would develop in your life or even mine such that we'll not be able then to enjoy perhaps what has been set aside. May I suggest, doesn't that indicate in the language that closes chapter 5, enjoy the blessings of God today. Although the best of intent may be to enjoy them tomorrow, circumstances may not permit it. Circumstances may not be such that you have the power to enjoy them then. For that reason, verses 3 and following are going to develop this point and do so in the following ways. I might ask you to notice near the bottom of that slide, some of the details are already given. Verse 3 reads like this. If a man beget an hundred children and live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. For he cometh in with vanity, and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover... He hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. The language is very interesting, isn't it? Solomon offers it like this. Suppose a man had a hundred children. Verse number three. And furthermore, suppose he lives many years and... 
His soul is not filled with good. So he has a great number of descendants, and he's lived a long time and maybe even acquired a number of things. And yet through it all, verse number 3 reminds us that if a man in that situation is such that his soul is not filled with good, he hadn't directed his attention to what's most needful, most important, and most vital. It says, an untimely birth is better than he. What does he mean by an untimely birth? The Hebrew would seem to suggest that that has relationship to, in essence, a greatly premature birth. Almost what you could describe as, taken to the extreme, a very serious situation of a miscarriage. In other words, here's one that's born, but this child is dead. Solomon will go so far as to say, if a person has lived his life, even if he has a hundred children, and even if he has known a lot of things about luxuries and blessings, if his soul isn't filled with good, what good is there to say about the nature of his time on this earth? The part about the hundred children, I would ask you to consider this note. You and I would say that if a man has a hundred children, that's a lot of children. There were some people in the Bible who had a lot of children. I would call to your attention Rehoboam. According to 2 Chronicles 11, that man had 88 children. 60 of them were girls, 28 of them were boys. That's a lot of boys and girls, isn't it? Can you appreciate or at least imagine the circumstance of that? But maybe we could ask about Solomon. As far as I know, the Bible doesn't tell us how many children Solomon had, but we know he had a lot of wives. <laughs> and we know he had a lot of concubines. 1 Kings 11, verses 1 and following. He may have had a lot more than 88 children. We just don't know. Be that as it may, doesn't that highlight that life is about the nature of how the Word of God defines it as good and making sure we devote ourselves to what God would call good, living wholesomely, wonderfully, and powerfully in obedience to the God of heaven. It is with that in mind, let's close that slide to note maybe that additional thought. Verse number 3 says, And also that he have no burial. What is one thing that happens on occasion, at least in Bible times, to those who chose not to live good? To those who chose to live in rebellion? Well, you probably can guess what that identifies. It was a rather powerful custom in the ancient era, and you and I still know something of it. Even if a man was known as a rascal and a scoundrel, he still has a funeral most of the time. And there may be a handful of people there, but at least he is given some kind of a burial. Now, he may not have the money for a fancy vault and may not have the money for other things, but still, that body is laid into the bosom of earth and a reality of an interment takes place. What would you say about someone who perhaps living in such a way as a rascal or a scoundrel? Nobody showed up for the funeral, and not only that, they just took the body out and threw it in a ditch somewhere. Now that probably would rub you and me the wrong way if they did that to one of our family members. Think about how they looked upon that in the ancient era of the Old Testament. It was a powerful reality to at least respectfully enough honor this person's life by providing them a proper burial. If you didn't bury a Jew, 
If you didn't offer to a Hebrew a proper burial, that was one of the greatest insults in, in to, to that person. And furthermore, it was a testimony in dramatic character to so many things. Solomon builds it up like this, and also that he have no burial. If this man has lived without goodness in his soul, in fact, so many people were turned against him, they didn't even honor him by burying him. Now that's a testimony of what a genuine rebel the man was. I would call to your attention that the Bible lists for us at least one example of this. In Jeremiah 22, God, speaking through the prophet, affirmed on that occasion that Jehoiakim, one of the final kings of Judah, there wasn't even going to be a burial for the man. He was an evil man. He wrought much wickedness, much evil in light of the kingdom of God. And quite frankly, he encouraged God's people not to follow God. He encouraged them to give their attention to Egypt, to give it to some other places. He wasn't a godly man. And God, through Jeremiah, said he won't even be buried. Now, may I say that at least that highlights here, doesn't it point us? We want to live a life that's good by God's standards so that we can appreciate a positive influence on those we love and those we know and lead other people to heaven. Solomon painted a picture here. Even for those who have no enjoyment of that which they've acquired, doesn't it remind us? If that were to happen to you and me, we look for a better place than this one. I freely confess it could well be such it happens to any of us. You store up things and then you get sick shortly after retirement and you just don't have the power to enjoy those things. If that happens to you and me, never let it buckle our faith. We look for a better place, a heavenly place, Hebrews eleven sixteen, And we look for a place that doesn't know anything about sorrow and death and pain and agony. We look for a place whose reservations are spoken of in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. A place for which the description reads like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to a place uncorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Even if this were to happen to us, we know that we have a far better set of riches laid up elsewhere. And with that in mind, why don't we make one final statement? I've tried to ask you to highlight that all of us need to live a life of dedicated faith. Faithfulness in the truth of God. Even Paul seemingly recognized the possibility of this in 2 Corinthians 1 verses 8 and 9. Keeping those things in mind, they'll at least help us also as we come to the next thing. What is another reality? In addition to no power to enjoy, what about no satisfaction? No satisfaction. Could I invite you to notice as we look into verses 6 and following of this particular chapter? Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to one place. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor 
that knoweth to walk before the living. As you can see on that slide, Solomon makes an observation. And it's one that I suspect every one of us knows very, very well. All the labor of man is for his mouth. No, there's many things a man will do just to put some food in his mouth. Maybe you have even thought about the fact here, as blessed as we are, we labor, we work, and we are so abundantly given a table of food, and we're thankful for it. And there are people in this world who are starving, who in fact would do anything you ask them as long as they could do it, admittedly, just to have a little morsel of food. Solomon said, All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. You know, if you were to provide individuals as hungry as they may be with some amount of food, six or eight hours later, they'll be hungry again. Even if they could stretch it out to a couple of days, still the pangs of hunger will return. Doesn't this remind us of that monotony that was mentioned in chapter 1? But I'd use that to ask us to consider this. Solomon seems to develop the point in the following way. Verse 8, What hath the wise more than the fool? Wouldn't we all agree a wise man will get hungry just like a fool will? A rich man will get hungry just like a poor man will. The same thing happens to all of us. Solomon's beginning to wrestle, it would seem, with this thought, if my wisdom and the opportunity for it by God, why can't that bring me to a stature and place in life where I don't suffer the same way a fool does? Because isn't it true, no matter how long you and I live, as wise as we may be, we're still going to be hungry and we're still going to have to work. There are those, I suspect, that might look upon that and argue, well, doesn't that make life rather meaningless? And to you and I, we'd say, absolutely not. It is in the reality of that anchoring, that stature, that presentation, that we come to a basis of lifting our eyes above this mundaneness. We know the meaning of life isn't found in the food on the table. The meaning of life isn't found only in that. That is a matter for our existence here. Our soul is fed some other way. The soul isn't fed by the food on the table. The soul is fed by the Word of God. And we thus, with interest, look into that Word and find passages like, "'Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness.'" For they shall be filled, Matthew 5, verse 6. Didn't Job say in Job 23, 12, that I have longed for that which fills my spiritual body more so than I have loved that which fills my physical one. Job said that. Let's add to that the following. A note here is made again in verse number 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth. A lot of us are going to go off to work tomorrow morning. And we'll work, of course, Monday to Friday and may even work Saturday and sometimes on occasion even late into the evening. Why do you and I do this? I'd like to offer you a consideration. When you and I work, keep a verse in mind like this one, Colossians chapter 3. This particular passage is often a very helpful one, a meaningful one for us as we give thought to our place in the workforce. Colossians chapter 3, 
we'll not read the fullness of this, but could I invite you to notice that the inspired writer here places in the consideration of effort the following thought. Verse 23 says it like this, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. There's a deep profoundness to that pair of verses. When you and I are working at our place, you may be mowing the yard. You may be teaching a class. You may be working at a place of business, a bank or otherwise. You may be working at any number of other things. But in this context, Paul wrote to the Colossians and said, Whatever you do, first do it heartily. Do your best. But then he said, As to the Lord. When you're cutting the grass, don't forget you're doing that as a servant to, the, to, to Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, do it in light of the fact that you're a Christian and you are a representative of Him and you're doing it for the cause of service to Him. Note the next verse. Because you know something. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. Jesus is watching us when we do this and He's taking note when we are working heartily and when we're working as to Him. And that gives a whole new perspective on our work, doesn't it? I'm not just working for me. I'm working as a representative of Him. I'm trying to be a good example of Him. I'm trying to be that which would be a proper one in service to Him. You'll notice we know that that's the context because He includes servants. Put yourself in the place of a first century servant. Here was a common slave your master tells you to do something, and Paul to that slave would say, you do it heartily, as to the Lord. Now surely if a slave was admonished to do that, then whatever may be the task which you and I may perform tomorrow, or Tuesday or otherwise, we can have the same mindset. With that, let's close that slide like this. You and I have a much grander purpose to our existence. It's not just to feed our mouth. Why are you here? You and I are here for the purpose of glorifying God. Isaiah 43, 7 highlights that. But may I suggest Daniel 5, 23. Maybe cast a spotlight upon that as rich as any other. You recall the scene. It was Belshazzar. In a drunken feast... He had, in fact, made use of those golden instruments from the temple of Solomon. And as he was, in fact, imbibing out of them, a hand appeared and wrote on the wall. And that hand had a message. And that message was this. Mene, mene, tekel upharsin. Aren't you thankful God told us what that means? God said, Belshazzar, you've been weighing the balances and found wanting because the God in heaven you didn't glorify. Now notice there was a heathen ruler. He was by no means a servant of God, and yet God expected him and demanded him that he glorify God, and he didn't do it. And his life was soon thereafter taken. Every one of us as Christians, we have accepted the blessedness. We're going to glorify God through Christ no matter what. Ephesians 3.21 
That's our purpose, and don't we thrill at the thought of it? As you and I close that slide, this, may I suggest, this second observation of Ecclesiastes 6 has really been a meaningful thing for us, but there's one more to come, and we'll use it to close our lesson. Because this one closes the chapter. It was the lesson text that was read just a minute ago. Let me read verses 9 through 12, closing the chapter, and we'll, then we'll focus on verses 11 and 12. Better is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. That which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? All the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow, for who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? You likely can gain a quick sense of Solomon's perspective in that four verses. Verse number 10, That which hath been is named already. Are you aware of the fact, and I know we all are, so many realities of this life. Your daddy did it, your grandpa did it, your great-grandpa did it, and nothing's changed. It has continued on, and it's called by the same name as he called it. Isn't that true? If I were to speak of many things, wordings that my grandpa would use, you'd know exactly what he meant. The thing of it is, those things that describe our existence... And there are critical parts of what goes on day to day. They're still basic to life. But note this. Verse number 11. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? If this is true, is man any better than a dog? Is man any better than an animal? There are those in our world, by the way, who would be quick to tell us man basically is an animal only slightly better by virtue of some evolutionary process. That just isn't so. Man didn't evolve. God made him. God fashioned and made man very different than any animal. Animals weren't made in the image of God, Genesis 1.26, but you and I were and are. With that said, only one thought remains. I entitled this particular slide, No Answers. It is true that if we look only in the human family, there's a lot of things we do not know. No answers. Solomon even lists some of them for us. Verse 12. Who knoweth what is good for man in this life? If all you and I ever look to and all the human family looks to is you tell me what's good in life, then everybody's going to have a different perspective and a different answer. And how do you know who's right? That's the mess our country's kind of in at the moment, isn't it? Everybody says what he or she wants. You and I know there's an absolute authority, though. But look at what comes after it. Who knows what's good for man? May I say the answer? God has told us what's good for man. Much of the rest of this book is going to amplify that consideration. God is the one that has this answer. Look at later in the same verse. Who can tell man what shall be after him under the sun? Man can't do it. 
but God can. God can tell us what the future holds, but you see, under the sun we don't know. No answers under the sun, but aren't you thankful for God's answers? He's not limited to under the sun. As you and I close that slide, how thankful we ought to be for the Word of God that provides us truthful, unwavering information and answers. His revelation, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 14, that revelation that reveals to us what is, in fact, in the mind of God. Tonight, as you and I close this lesson, may I say it'll prepare us, really, for chapter number 7, but that'll wait for another time. Because as we come to that chapter, these thoughts will be amplified. I've even hinted to you, you'll notice, man's wisdom is going to take center stage beginning in the next chapter. You and I will have much to learn about that wisdom, but for now, we've seen three things. First, no power to enjoy. That might happen. Secondly, no satisfaction. Thirdly, no answers. Under the sun, we are bereft of many things we wish we had. Quite often, it may be asserted there's unfairness in other things, but you and I know there's a better answer waiting. Solomon's going to finish things up for us in the closing chapter with words like this. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep His commandments. That's all of it. That's the whole, that's the entirety, that is the thoroughness of it. Are you doing that tonight? What about me? If we aren't directing our thoughts and our life in that direction, we, like Solomon's observation of others, are missing the boat. We're missing the truth. We have no answers. We may well find no satisfaction in a life that's bereft of the enjoyment we wish it had. May you and I live with wisdom, with direction, with purpose, understanding it's the Word of God that reveals all of it. If tonight we could be of help perhaps to anybody in your response to the gospel's invitation, we want to do that. Oh, how diligently we want to do that. As an alien sinner, Jesus requires you to do this. Believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. If we could be of assistance to you in that way, please let us know. If, on the other hand, you've become a Christian, but maybe over the course of time, over the course of life, you have begun to sense a feeling like some of these that Solomon shared. Well, you realize just like he, you can make it about face as well. You can come to your better dealings in life just like he did. If we could be of assistance to you by prayer to God on your behalf, as you repent and confess error, He has promised to forgive it, and you will be stated in a place of sanctification and justification before Him. If this very evening we could be of assistance to you in that way as well, we so much want to be of help. And at once, while together we stand and while we sing.